Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you hear us? I can hear you, Adzi. It's Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Boltwood. I've never been called Adsy, funnily enough. Uh, joined once again by Nico Morales. How you doing, Nico? Uh, good, good. Now that I'm not sick anymore, I'm, I'm doing real well. Well, we'll come on to that. Uh, Lawrence Vigano, no, you're, you're here as well. Good to have you. Uh, and Chris Hennish joins us as well. Hey. We were just discussing before the uh, podcast that uh, Nico was trying to slander my good name by essentially blaming me. Victim in this situation, in many ways, for a terrible illness you picked up, Nico. Apparently, when you were over here in London, that's why you've been missing from the podcast. You're, you're blaming me for this. Uh, you know, I don't think I can adjudicate blame to many other people, uh, considering <laughs> we went to a very okay. sketchy right. kebab shop. Sketchy, just um, a kebab shop. Like you know, kebab. and and Adam was nice enough to buy me a lamb kebab, and I don't think the meat was of the. <laughs> most sanitary uh, quality and therefore I suffered a little bit of a viral <laughs> disease in my lower intestine that caused me to lose control of my bowels for a couple days so you know it's all good I'm just thinking if you go into a kebab shop you've got to go with your eyes open you've got to know the risks that are attached going into an East Island kebab shop see but we were a little bit inebriated I believe <laughs> some Ad- more than others you might Adzi. say Adzi yeah, as, as, as we'll call yeah, you yeah so like, inebriated it was Nico they decided to call me Adzi which they never no one's ever called me in my entire life and I hope it never happens ever again. People are making a leap into certain conclusions. There's certain conspiracy theories, I'd say, sort of uh, doing the rounds. But uh, I'm completely innocent, in my opinion. I treated you to a nice meat and chips uh, in a beautiful eatery and establishment. And, uh, you know, there's many other factors that could have played into you being sick. You know, alcohol, uh, jet lag. I don't know. Who knows? I guess we'll never know. But uh, one thing we do know is that Arsenal should have beaten Manchester United this weekend. A remarkable game, I'm sure we all agree. The stats themselves are pretty incredible after the fact. 33 shots for Arsenal. David De Gea making 14 saves, equaling the record for the most ever in a Premier League game. Uh, the expected goals as well. I've really seen it above three. Some was 4.6 for Arsenal, 1.9 for Manchester United. Therefore, Chris, Arsenal could and should have won, apparently. Uh, I think they could, yeah, definitely. Um, I look, I looked at some of the numbers, and interestingly, um, Arsenal I think had 15 shots on target, which it took Swansea eight games to reach that same total. 
um, which I think in some ways gives you a, a slight hint at, at how much Arsenal produced in front of goal. Whether they, they deserve to win it, I, I can't necessarily commit to that just right now. Um, I think, for me, they caused a lot of their own problems, actually, in the first half. Um, and and I expected them to be aggressive in the same way they were against Tottenham, and, and they had been against um, Huddersfield as well. But I just saw a, a real complacency in them. Um, and I think that was was typified by the, the centre-backs, Koscielny and uh, Mustafi, who for me, make two very basic errors for those opening two goals. Um, and I think any time you give a team like Manchester United practically a two-goal head start, you're asking to be to be beaten at home. I think Chris puts it very well there, Nico. And Jonathan Wilson in The Guardian earlier today uh, echoed a similar sentiment, the fact that Arsenal were brilliant for 79 minutes, but they were 2-0 down before that period. Um, Arsenal, of course, accepted on the counter-attacks. Defensive errors cost them once again. Um, only Palace now have made more errors leading to goals directly than Arsenal this season. Um, some controversy I saw on Twitter between Alan Shearer and none other than Mr. DT from Arsenal Fan TV over how the match today pundits analysed this game. Um, Arsenal fans seemingly not agreeing with Alan Shearer, most on Twitter thinking they deserve to win, but I'd agree with Big Al in that surely this was a fair result, Nico. Yeah, I think to some extent people are kind of I don't know, confused or they don't really know how to interpret some of these deeper metrics. Like you talked about, the expected goals are a little bit weird in this game and people can make the case that Arsenal had a ton of chances. And I think that's a sort of a separate matter. I think the expected goals, especially if you look that if you look at them in sort of a, they call it a race map um, sort of perspective, which is expected goals over the certain amount of minutes. Um, it tells the story tactically of the game, which is, you know, uh, Mourinho knows how to expose the the fallacies in Arsene Wenger's philosophy and the way that he likes to approach the game currently. And I think the way that they did that is, as you're mentioning, you know, in the opening couple minutes, very low risk press um, was able to expose their very lopsided buildup. And a lot of that is down to how Arsene Wenger deems his side you know, needs to go forward. And that same buildup that caused them the issues in the first few minutes was the thing that created so many chances later on. Um, I think the difference here is that, you know, we've seen United be more compact and negate so much of what good attacking teams do um, and limit the amount of chances that those kind of attacking teams can have. They weren't as compact. They weren't as aggressive in their pressing actions because they wanted that little extra bit going forward in the counterattacking areas. They had to suffice, or, or not su- suffice, sorry, they had to sacrifice um, some element of defensive compactness to have that. And I think through that, you see the chances that Arsenal created, and they did very well. Um, and I think in that sense, Mourinho was comfortable with doing that. Mourinho was comfortable seeding those chances and seeding that space because I think he knew David De Gea could come up with a lot of those saves. And in the end, you know, they, they were, I think the third goal is really exemplary of sort of what he was trying to do there he was trying to have that little extra bit in the counterattack, um and then once they were up maybe three or four through those situations and he would shut down the game um obviously it was a little bit different because they got that goal but then paul pogba got the red card so he had to change his game plan um but i think you know despite the expected goals this is something that was calculated from Mourinho, and it doesn't really happen without having exceptional players. It doesn't happen without having you know the exceptional finishing in the first couple of minutes, but but it also doesn't happen um, without the the amazing saves from David De Gea, and that's something we have to remember. Mm, there is that 
De Gea factor. The stat that Opta uh, put out early today was David De Gea saved 11.2 goals more than expected this season in the Premier League, given the quality of chances are faced 4.5 more than any other keeper. Um, so obviously a decisive factor in this game. As Nico mentioned, so Lawrence, it was the players going forward as well. Lukaku, Lingard, Martial, um, a pretty effective front three, great podcast. Uh, Lingard especially, you know, uh, a player who sort of gets a fair bit of criticism in his own right, but showed the industry that was needed. 10.3 kilometres covered, the most ground covered on the pitch by any other player. And um, of course has now come up with decisive goals in two consecutive games. Uh, he's impressive for Manchester United at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, he certainly has impressed. I think the uh, it, it, to, to add sort of something to all of that is that it, we get a little bit obsessed and I think sometimes we we can latch on to certain metrics to try to save face for certain things. The fact is you buy a good goalkeeper or you buy a goalkeeper who's got good positioning because, well, you want a good goalkeeper. You know, it, people seem to speak as if you just at the beginning of the game kind of choose one player from the outfield to sort of go in goal and it's like pure chances where that person's good or bad. Um it, which doesn't really make sense. I think expected goals is also an incredibly flawed metric when it comes to this situation because we're also looking at where the goalkeeper's position, defence positions, those sort of things. I think, like we've already said, a lot before on the podcast. But um, uh, the same goes the other way for Manchester United. You know, people talk about them being clinical. People talk about them um, getting into good positions. And I think that those are all uh, quite intangible ideas for something with Manchester United, which is basically Mourinho makes his sides... Um, into not machines, but they become um, almost immune to some of the other things that some of the other Premier League teams seem, seem susceptible to. I think over the years, that's partly what has irked um, Wenger about him in a way is that it seems a little bit, it seems almost a bit reductive, maybe even a lot more basic sometimes what Mourinho does. And I think it can get under some of the manager's skin. Um, and I think it definitely gets under Arsenal's skin. There's nothing worse really than facing both Jose Mourinho and Manchester United because both of those things do tend to get under people's skin quite a lot. And it must be difficult. It must be difficult to realise that Mourinho is great. <laughs> hey, he's not bad. He's doing right. The, the gap is eight points, though, still to Manchester City. Uh, Nico, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, Paul Pogba getting sent off uh, means he's going to be missed. They're not appealing that ban, so it's three games he's going to be missing. Of course, in this game, once again, he showed out in Pony is joining the defence and attack. Do you think now that he's going to be missing against City that that spells disaster for United hopes of closing the gap to their to their City rivals? No, not necessarily. Um, Mourinho can negate a lot of what we're doing by you know maybe doing the opposite of what he did in the arsenal game but obviously he had the confidence and ability in a lot of his players um to you know sort of manage that risk and also enjoy the the positive aspects of like i said seeding that space and maybe being less aggressive from a defensive perspective in in order to have that on the uh, on the offensive end um but you know it's it's a I wouldn't say it's a positive for City that Paul Pogba is injured because I think I, I agree with the sentiment that Pep Guardiola talked about in his press conference this week, which is, you know, you want to face each and every team as strong as, you know, as strong as you can um, in terms of their quality, because you want to see if you can really be the best, if you want to test yourself. And if, you know, you're coming up against every challenge and you're coming up 
positive or you're coming out of the other end with a win, um, then you truly de- deserve to, to be the winner. You des- truly deserve to be the champion. I don't want an easy way out of United. I don't want a asterisk next to the to the win. Unfortunately, there will be for this game because Paul Pogba is missing. But um, yeah, I don't necessarily think it, it's, it spells victory because they're, they can do a lot of things defensively that I think um, are perfectly sort of counteracting of Manchester City's game. Speaking of Manchester City, I mean, they beat West Ham 2-1, another late-ish goal for them to secure victory. Uh, Pep Guardiola coming out after the game again, talking about a side who didn't want to play football in opposition. Um, David Moyes setting his side up very defensively, uh, practically building a wall in front of goal, yet Man City still found a way through Nico Guardiola, saying he learned lessons after the game how to break down teams who sit so deep yeah i mean it's been an interesting experience obviously the past i think the past three wins huddersfield uh southampton and this game were all 2-1 um and i think southampton the was for the first time uh this season the expected goals and the chances were relatively the same it was a game that could have gone either way but um obviously manchester city came up with the win an amazing strike by raheem sterling but yeah i think it is a, it is a learning time for Pep Guardiola because he's not really used to this, and and Manchester City are missing a big part of their offensive actions and their offensive ability um, by missing out on John Stones because the buildup isn't as good. But even in this game, that didn't really seem to matter because, as he mentioned in the press conference, you know they tried to go back to the goalkeeper, they tried to pull the opposition out vertically by having possession in different areas, and they still didn't want to come out. So it can be very very difficult and frustrating for a team to. Literally, and I think we don't really realize how often or how little this happens, but literally defend with 11 players and put them behind the ball and have them all be in the box. I mean, that's a very difficult thing, regardless of the quality of your team, to break down um, at any level and especially this one. So I think it, it's it's a good thing that City are going through this period of, of difficulty without dropping any points because you have to have a little bit of adversity throughout the season. You have to have challenges and, and people shake things up and do things differently so that you can evolve as a team and you can grow um, as a possible champion. So I think it's, it is a good learning experience for this team that they sort of understand how to uh, deal with these situations because... There aren't a whole lot of ways that you can beat Manchester City. I don't necessarily think that being as compact as physically possible and just staying in the 18-yard box is the best way to do it. But obviously, they have, people have gotten close recently. I think it's more of a high-pressing thing if you want to actually beat City. But yeah, it's it's good that City's coming through this period with some wins. Um, but it's been difficult. Mm. All coming down to that game next weekend. Uh, if City win, they will equal the record for consecutive wins in the Premier League at 14, matching Arsenal from 2002. But it is an interesting question, isn't it, Chris? How do you expect Mourinho to set up for this crucial game? Well, it was an interesting one on Saturday because I did expect them to to essentially play the entire game like they did the second half, which was to to sit a little bit deeper and try and soak things up. I don't think they've got a ready-made replacement for Pogba, which is is kind of the the frailty of Manchester United is that they've invested so much in him um, and and put so much responsibility on him at the same time. There is part of me that thinks if Mourinho had a choice, he'd rather lose Pogba than Matic, though, because I think Matic is is the linchpin that holds the defensive structure together. Um, not just because of who he is, but because of the advice and um, instruction that he gives to those around him. I, I think if he was to go out guns blazing or, or even in a similar kind of aggressive way that he did against Arsenal, I fear he might be picked off early on 
Um, and I think what he would rather do is try and keep some stability to proceedings during the course of um, the game. And I think if you're looking at, at potential frailties that have put themselves forward with Man City lately, they don't look that strong on corners. Um, and it's only, I would say it's only a recent thing. You look at the goal they conceded against Huddersfield, the goal from West Ham, and then the fact that Southampton managed to generate some chances from, from corners as well. That that would be my thought, um, because I think he knows in his heart of hearts, Mourinho, that his team aren't as fluid as, as Man City's. Perhaps can't go toe-to-toe. Set pieces, that's the way forward. Interesting. Um, let's talk about Liverpool, Lawrence. Uh, they beat Brighton 5-1. Yeah. They're already good Lovely. now. They, they completely destroyed Brighton. Fifth win now in six Premier League games. Uh, obviously, since that six. defeat to, uh, to Spurs... On the counter attack, they were they were irrepressible in this game, weren't they? Yeah, I think that's part of the point is there was a there was a sort of a turning point in the game, I think, where it was it would have crushed or could have crushed Liverpool's mentality had they. Sorry, I'm putting up Christmas lights. Um, it could have crushed Liverpool's mentality had they conceded a goal to Brighton. I think at that point, Glenn Murray goes down one end and uh, the ball rockets off Simon Mignolet uh, up in the air, and it is then cleared to go down the other end, and uh, somehow. Liverpool managed to score. It's a lovely finish from Firmino. It's a great finish. Um, and it's it's really positive. But again, it's Liverpool playing the odds. And um, as long as that happens, I think it's going to make it difficult for them to um, become serious title contenders. It's incredibly exciting as a Liverpool fan, obviously, I think, um, having this time of big wins. Um, but there is something also quite satisfying, I think, as a fan watching your team deep in structure. Um, and it's to some extent there's an issue in the league uh, for some managers because at the moment Pep is uh, playing very satisfying football. They've got the great satisfaction of a being top of the league and b grinding out these wins. Um, and I think the, the good feeling now in the press and uh, more publicly is less with Klopp and more with the guys who are um, at least looking progressive. I think, which is you know the likes of Man City and maybe even Manchester United with their uh, differing styles week to week. What did you make of his rotation in this game, Klopp? Because um, I saw a lot being made of the fact that he's seemingly rotating his side. He's made 54 changes this season. Um, that's more than any other Premier League club. This time last season, yeah. I think it's part... It was weird analysis. I, was, I watched this on Match of Day 2. There was a bit of strange analysis from the likes of... Um, uh, I think it was Phil Neville and mm. Matt Upson who were sort of saying, yeah, he's, he's much more consciously rotating, which is obviously true. Um, they said he's added depth to the squad. I'm not really sure where that depth depth has mm, come from. I think that was, that was something that was being criticised a few a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, and it, it all seems uh, as if they hadn't really been watching Liverpool in any great detail. The reason Liverpool have had to rotate their midfield is because they haven't been able to find a good midfield structure. And at times they've been very fearful that the opposition will hit them and make it very difficult for them to uh, play their style of football that they want to play. So it's been... Um, it's been educational, I think, for Klopp um, and maybe informative as a side to see where the weaknesses lie. Um, you know, they're fourth in the table now, which is obviously great. I think a lot of people thought this, in terms of the timeline, should have been the season when they'd be kicking on and maybe challenging the likes of City and United. So, you know, there are comparisons, but in relative terms, yeah, it's been a reasonably good time for Liverpool. I mean, 
as you mentioned, as Klopp seemed to say after the game, it was more uh, forced upon him these changes than the, than the choice he made. I mean, they ended up fielding uh, Georgina Wijnaldum. We played about three with, with Lovren yeah. in the middle, Wijnaldum on the left side of the defence from Liverpool's perspective, and um, Chan on the right side from Liverpool's perspective, which actually didn't play out all that badly, even though maybe tactically they did seem a little um, disjointed at times. Yeah. I'm, I didn't get the analysis. The analysis from my side is Liverpool have had injuries and they've had at times have Ill, illnesses. They've also not really assimilated players into the squad as seamlessly as they'd like. Maybe Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, etc. Whereas Salah's fitted in very seamlessly, which has been very uh, satisfying for Klopp. Um, so there's good and bad. I think there's pluses and minuses. Um, I think it's still a very much a work in progress, though, whereas it feels a lot more like uh, the other sides around Liverpool are coming a bit more to fruition. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you feel confident of a top four place now because you're now four points ahead of Spurs who will come on to obviously having their own struggles um, ahead of Arsenal as well who are starting to, uh, were starting to build a run before that defeat to Manchester United. Are you confident of securing European qualification again because Liverpool, especially away from home, are looking very strong? Well, they look very strong but they're not, I don't think they've had the big challenges that people seem to be painting that they've had and that's what I find a little bit unusual. They've not necessarily faced all the top sides in that time so um, not as confident as I think I felt last season when I, there was a bit more weakness in the league and a few more people weren't looking so good. But, yeah, I mean, they if they can put a run together like this, um, why not? Hmm. OK, you should talk about Everton, Liverpool's Merseyside rival. Chris. Uh, it's Big Sam won his first game in charge, a 2-0 win for the Toffees over Huddersfield. Uh, a much more positive performance, which is say, Chris, seem to be reasons for optimisms, not only in the win, but obviously the performance of Wayne Rooney as well, and seemingly more defensively organised, as you'd expect from Big Sam. Yeah, there was a little bit of quality in there as well with the Sigurdsson goal. Um, uh, this part, I mean, I think it's so fascinating to look at how quickly perception changes, because I think before Big Sam comes in, you're saying, in fact, I would say before that midweek game um, against West Ham, you're looking and saying Everton are in a tailspin, you know, that could they go down? Um, their Europa League campaign has already done and dusted for a terrible season. This has been. But in the space of, what is it, maybe 11 days, I think, since that um, Europa League game where they were smashed by Atalanta, they're up half. Um, and, and everyone is sort of looking at things in a much more positive light. And it makes me wonder whether plumping for, for Big Sam is... It's not a bad short-term option, but at the same time, he's got an 18-month contract. And he's got an 18-month contract on a decent amount of money. And so, again, it's 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 clearly an instance where a lack of planning has come back to, to bite them in the backside. Well, can we also talk um, a little bit about... Are they transitioned away from the position they're in now? Because I would assume he stays on um, after the summer because, you know, otherwise you're just going to end up paying a guy to, to leave up for no great reason. And then he'll want to bring his players in and then you get more mired in the the Allardyce ethos, if you will. And I would say that's further away from, from what they're trying to do. I don't think it's impossible for him to take them to where they want to be, but I still think it's highly unlikely. I think it's very unlikely that they they will be where they want to want to be as a club, even if they'll be more successful probably under some other guys. Let's also talk about the fact that it wasn't that the players down tools. I think it was less uh, sinister than that. But you know, we we've spoken earlier on in the season about the likes of 
Leicester City maybe not favouring their manager or not being happy. Uh, it's really unusual how we see sort of the worker base in England, I guess, or the you know how those people are treated because uh, Everton had some terrible results, like really bad results that just any professional side shouldn't have, and the team lost their focus. And I understand that there's an element of panic and stuff. These guys are on more than enough money not to panic. But uh, that's what makes it difficult, I think, is um, until they got the resolution of Big Sam, it did seem like there wasn't that focus. And it was really unusual to watch. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. I think uh, he was met with somewhat of a muted response by Everton fans, the, the appointment of Big Sam. But, I mean, the eight points clear of... The relegation zone now, which was obviously something that was concerning the Everton managers, certainly when they got rid of Ronald Koeman at the club. So they'll be looking isn't, further up the table. Isn't it a bit of a like a really tired signing? I understand you guys may have talked mm. about this in my absence, but I mean, it, I think there was a few things going around at the weekend on Twitter um, talking about the rotation of managers like Sam Allardyce and Pulis and Roy Hodgson, and, and it's just like, okay, Everton spent a ton of money in the summer, and they might not have, they might not see the return on those players that they might have hoped because of you know their manager might not have worked out or whatever, but. It's not in my or your or really anybody on on this podcast's wheelhouse to like know the the you know up and coming managers that are doing good things and maybe some of the lower leagues. But going based off the club's actions, if they're spending that amount of money and we've talked about their ambitions and their goals as a relatively large club within the Premier League to maybe bridge that gap or get a little bit closer to consistently qualifying in Europe then one has to imagine that that's where they want to go. And by hiring someone like like Sam Allardyce or hiring someone like Alan Pardew or hiring really any of those guys that have no have had no semblance of success besides not getting relegated, which apparently is the you know the greatest thing in the world, it, w- w- that's not a that's not a long-term move for the club. So you have to imagine that someone who's in a, who's in a position of power at Everton Football Club, does little to no work in scouting in scouting coaches that would be able to come in and progress themselves as a, as a football club. Why does it have to be these four managers or these five English managers that have achieved little to nothing within the game of relative success, <laughs> and yet they're getting job after job after job? And it, and I I think the the conversation about English coaches is encapsulated by people recommending that Sean Dyche be put up for manager of the year last season. Is he a good coach? Yes. Does he deserve to be among the best coaches of the season last year for simply not getting relegated? Is he no, doing it was more a good than job? Not getting relegated. It was more than not getting relegated. Uh, what I then mean, what is it? It, he spent a ton of money at Burnley, and he hasn't. Is oh, he's he's doing great now? But you will be. I will. You know, maybe they finish in the top half. Um, you know, at the end of the season. But I really, I would put the house on it that they do not finish seventh. So I, I don't understand what these coaches, specifically these English coaches, are achieving. That is that is warranting this type of. Pref, you know, preferential treatment. In, I at think the top maybe, of the maybe you just picked the wrong example. I think maybe you just picked the wrong example. Sean Dyche is probably the best of, uh, you know, a fairly sort of um, maligned bunch of managers. Okay, but then take any of these other guys. Why does, for example, okay, another good uh, example of what I'm talking about is the West Brom job. Okay, you get rid of Tony Pulis. What in in Alan Pardew's 
track record, recent history, makes anyone think that they're going to take the club, which has spent a decent amount of money recently and has really good players in. Nasser Chadley, uh, you know, Livermore's a good player. Some of those other defenders are, are a really t- a talented bunch. What makes them think that he's going to take them forward in a in a sustain in a sustainable way into the future and progress their style of football I don't, but I, a, I don't know i don't know if they think it's going to be a sustainable thing this is the thing i think i agree with nico in that these are obviously you know very short-term appointments i'd argue i mean look at swansea now we'll come on to them but tony pulis is being linked with the job as the man to come in and help save them from relegation uh, Obviously, as you say, Nico, it's almost laziness on their part in appointing these managers. But, of course, the risk of relegation is so great that they will do everything they can to avoid it. And therefore, they think they're putting their their chances on these safe hands who are proven to avoid relegation. Although, I'd agree, Pardew, arguable whether he's got the credentials to do so. But I think it speaks to what Chris mentioned earlier. It's, it's the short-termism of the, of the management of the club's hierarchy. We clearly aren't setting out a vision over a course of a number of seasons, uh, or if they do, I, I, then they seem to just, just I, they seem to just uh, go off the plan almost immediately. You look at the start of this season, Crystal seem... Palace hiring Frank de Boer, mm. they sort of lost faith in that after four games or so. Ronald Koeman as well, Everton's supposed to be the manager who could, who could take them to another level. They lost faith in that all of a sudden, and then they almost have to press the reset button halfway through the season. They can't bring in, or who they'd like to bring in, maybe a longer-term option. So they bring in someone like Big Sam to, to steady the ship until the end of the season, and then they're going to have to start all over again so i think it's a a question more of the club's planning over the long term as opposed to you know is this the right move right now potentially to bring big sam in in the longer term maybe not i think it's also there is a case to be made for familiarity um amongst the players people knowing what they're getting um and almost a reversion to the meme if you like sometimes i think uh and what I mean by all those cliches is sometimes players like something that they know what they're going to get with that. And sometimes, uh, and you know, as much as we, as we like to think of ourselves as maybe people who are trying to progress the game in some way, there's also something to acknowledge in there that is almost like, uh, these, these guys don't necessarily see progress as just pretty football or entertaining those people who pay their money every week. And, I think there's more to it than that. I think also a lot of... But it's not just about the style of football. It's also about they're not doing anything significant. I mean, Mark Hughes... What do you mean, a- do you mean by that? I mean, I, that's what I find is a bit of a strange... That's what I find is a difficult um, uh, criticism is I can see I can see that there's very tangible sides to what Pep Guardiola does. I can see very tangible sides to what Jurgen Klopp does, but both of these managers have been found that when they didn't have the investment that they wanted, then which, by the way, was how much in the summer for Man City? A lot of money, but I, I think a lot, also a lot of money. so. So at the same time, there, there's something there that that backs that ideology and backs the idea of um, spending all this money with Pep and spending all this money with Klopp and spending it all with Mourinho. It builds something up to that level. None of those managers in that list have ever had that level of investment. And I'm not saying that if they did have that level of investment, then they would be successful. But I think it's sort of beating people who have been relatively successful within the game with a bit of a shit stick. Because the fact is that these guys exist within, a, a, you know, a, um, I guess a, an ecosystem which has found some sort of value for them. And instead of uh, acknowledging them and analyzing where that value comes from, we seem to be finding every reason not to value those things. I think Pat Guardiola is part of that. And the whole 
the Barcelona rhetoric, which goes around. He's talking about, oh, these, you know, we found another team that aren't playing football. No, we found another team that don't play the kind of football that you want, Pep, because that's what you do. And you turn people against people in the media. It happened in La Liga and people were sick of it after a, after thought, a short space of time. To some extent, it happened in Bundesliga as well. People were a bit sick of his shit. Thought, and the fact is, like, if, if Pep, Pep Guardiola didn't look as progressive as he does, or dresses hipster as he does, or all these kind of things, great of course coach, it would yeah. be different. But it comes as a whole package, and that's part of the problem. I, I, I agree. I, I agree. It in, makes me uncomfortable. I agree in, in that, yeah, a lot of these guys aren't playing on the on the, on the the level of investment that Mourinho and Guardiola and some of these other guys are, but you can make the case that they have had the ability to, you know, have a major investment in a lot of these clubs. People talk, I think Chris has mentioned a few times about how, how much Tony Pulis has spent at, at West Brom and we've talked about, you know, uh, yeah, but how much yeah, other... But that's not, yeah, but the West Brom are never going to get to the point. Well, we're never going to get to the point where Tony Pulis goes to them and go, I need a 300 million spending kitty this summer and we need to be able to bring this, this, this and this. Now, it goes both ways because these managers have also chosen to take that task and have never and have never maybe had the opportunity or never thought to put their CV in at Real Madrid, but it it just seems a little bit too convenient to me that we can go down this route of well these guys aren't as good blah blah blah. I, I see understand. What you're saying, you you're almost saying they should be there. they should be judging their own merits as opposed to judging them all one. But one. the same uh, and, and, but to counter that very argument, mm. that's the same thing that keeps things the same and doesn't allow. For change, well, I mean, it's you know it's the, it's the same as saying, well, we, we you know we trust these guys. Let's go with them. So to some extent, there's an element of like you know not nepotism, but you know what I mean, um, uh, favoring your friends. Well, I mean, as we're talking about this, what's really interesting is that Big Sam and Marco Silva themselves criticised each other's records. Big Sam first coming out um, and saying that Silva's record couldn't be compared to his own. You know, he's only taken hold down. That's his his achievements to date in. English football, Marco Silva hitting back in this apparent war of words and saying, you know, look at Big Sam, what he was doing at my age, Marco's age, you know, and then come and talk to me. The, the comparison is unfair, essentially. So it's interesting as we're having this discussion, the managers themselves are almost criticising each other's records. I mean, what did you make of that, old Chris? Because it seemed to blow up in the last week. Yeah, I mean, Alves has got to defend himself. I'm not saying he's right. I think he's, he's, he's wrong, to be fair, because... He wasn't doing anything of um, of note at uh, at Silver's agent, and you could form an argument that post post probably the Bolton or Blackburn era of his career, he hasn't really done a great deal outside of firefight. Um, and I think I think the second that you remove um, the mystique around keeping a team in the league, which has which has a skill to it, it definitely does. Um, I think it is harder for them to seem like a special breed. Um, and and to be fair, look, that group of, of managers has made a, a fairly decent living off working at that lower end of the table and preying on situations where clubs didn't have forethought or didn't have planning, so needed someone to come in and do a job. And that's what Allardyce has done at Palace. It's what he did at Sunderland. Um, and that elevated him to the position of England manager. I think we forget sometimes that, but for a very badly timed interview um, or sting operation, excuse me, he he would still be in charge of the national team. You'd imagine. So I, I think that there's always a, an element of ego and pride in this as well. Um, I think that's pretty 
rampant across football, whether it's managers, coaches, players, whatever. Um, personally, if I was silver, I wouldn't get involved in it. I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think you you win anything by you know throwing back and and or clapping back about the fact that you've done more than him or, or when you're uh, 53 or 63 you'll have a better career. Um, Allardyce is always going to toot his own horn because it was clear that he wasn't the first choice and so he has to protect his own image in his eyes and mm. and Silver is better position at Watford personally. It does bring us on to uh, Swansea quite nicely of course the bottom of the table now on nine points um if you look above them in 19th west ham have changed their manager crystal palace have changed their manager west brom have changed their manager swansea still sticking with with paul clement for now however that's their ninth defeat now in 12 matches with a 2-1 defeat to stoke uh, the players apparently turning on each other after the game defender martin olsen saying you know it's time to get tough dig some players out of course as i mentioned now rock bottom from safety <laughs> Now, rock bottom, I should say. Ryan Giggs, apparently the favourite to take over. Tony Pulis, uh, another in the running, according to the bookies. I mean, Nico, if you're the chairman, Hugh Jenkins, uh, and you mention all your concerns there, all your thoughts on some of these managers on the roundabout, what do you do in this situation? Do you stick with uh, with Clement? Do you move someone like Giggs, who's obviously unproven his level? Or do you go to Pulis, who you think, oh, maybe he can save us from this situation? Uh, I'd probably stick with Clement for a little bit, because I think... Um despite the situation being pretty dour, obviously I've seen a lot of statistics about, I think they only had two shots or something like that. in Kurt the Bournemouth Zuma game. had more shots than them in November, apparently. Yeah. This is the, and so the when you, when you have that sort of anemic, anemic offensive output, it can be difficult to justify why you would keep someone like him in the job. But I think, you know, given, given his relatively young, ventures into head coaching i still think there's time for improvement and time for development and i think that it's you know it's a difficult thing i i think i would still stick with him for i don't know i'd give him well into the spring and maybe even after that because then maybe you're maybe you're uh maybe you're your ship has sailed in terms of uh, keeping yourself in the Premier League, but I think you know he's t- he's a tactically adept manager, and I think it's all the issues on the field right now for Swansea aren't necessarily down to him. So I I would stick with Clement regardless of the situation because switching to a different manager I don't think would change a whole lot of things. I think a lot of the personnel uh, issues aren't necessarily down to him, and a lot of the things that they're experiencing experiencing. Um, can't really be brought down to to his doing. So, yeah, I would stay with him. Oh, I mean, that seems to be in line with what the, the Swansea City owners are thinking. Uh, according to reports today, the manager retains the support of the club's owners. Uh, they want to give him until January to, to back him in the transfer market to try and turn around his situation. Um, what do you make of it all, Chris? Because, you know, it looks to me like the dreaded vote of confidence there from the uh, Swansea owners today. Yeah, I, I see why you think that. Um, it, it's so bizarre to me this sort of shift of Swansea because they seem so organised and and well pla- well planned out and prepared. And you looked at the way that they had this ethos of really the manager was was important, but it was not the be all and end all. They dictated the style through the manager rather than the other way around. And I would say Clement probably fits into that same style, the sort of Brendan Rodgers, Roberto Martinez era of Swansea. 
But it's the squad, I think, that is, is really doing them over. I don't think Paul Clement is a terrible manager. I think definitely there's an issue with them showing attacking intent and actually getting shots on goal and doing all this thing. And, you know, there's, I think it was Dan's story had the, the stat that Kurt Zuma had more shots on target in November than Swansea did. Um, it, that is obviously a concern. And, and you look at the fact that um, brought Borney back to the club. You look at a lot of their summer deals. I mean, uh, Roque Mesa, Renato Sanchez, Klukas, Borney in there. There's not any wingers, which I would have thought they'd need because uh, to me, Routledge doesn't look like a consistent performer. Uh, Die is the same. Narsing, since he came in, I don't think he, he's really pulled up trees. So I'm a bit baffled as to how they got to this position when you look at how usually um, organised they are. There was obviously a change in ownership. Um, the American owners came in and I had heard rumblings from people in that part of the world that there's maybe a little bit of discord and a lack of unity in the thought process and, and the, the actual preparation of signing players, which doesn't really surprise me. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's just a shame. I think if you're going to change coach, you have to acknowledge that actually whoever comes in is going to be working with a pretty imbalanced and pretty poorly constructed squad to begin with. Um, and it's one of those things where I have a, a nasty feeling this Swansea side is going to be going back into January like they did last year and hoping that teams will be willing and able to sell them the kind of players that they need, which is, for me, wingers and, and maybe even um, a forward option. Because I look at that deal for Lorente to Spurs, and to me it, it's akin to that old uh, allegory about the, the frog and the scorpion crossing the lake. It didn't really help anyone because Spurs don't seem to know how to use him properly, and it's taken away one of Swansea's best forwards. Interesting. Um, shall we finish up on the Premier League by talking about the mighty or not so mighty Spurs, who drew one all with Watford this weekend? Now that win in four, just two points from possible twelve. In those games, um, of course, Nico, everyone pointing to the absence of Toby Alderweireld, who uh, who did a hamstring injury uh, against Real Madrid in the Champions League. Now talk that he could be out until March or April, potentially, which would be a big blow for Spurs, who've only kept one clean sheet in their last seven games now. Um, can we simply boil it down to that, the fact that without Toby, the defence seemingly doesn't work without him? Uh, not necessarily the defense, but also the attack. Um, they had such a direct line from their defense to Harry Kane, specifically from to- Toby Alderweireld to uh, to Harry Kane with his passing ability. That you know, a lot of the times they could circumvent the midfield, they could hit um, teams on the break, they could compact the formation and really take advantage of a high line or something like that. Which is something that they, you know, I think. <clears throat> excuse me, when we went to go watch. Um, Spurs at Wembley and we saw West Brom that was probably the most interesting thing I saw tactically from the game was that you know in the in the first half uh given the fact that they didn't have Llorente uh West Brom were relatively comfortable with sitting back um and having some crosses come into the box and allowing Spurs that element of getting forward and 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 you know having a possession further up the field so that they can get crosses in the box but then since they had uh, since Spurs subbed on Llorente in the second half, they knew that he was going to be an aerial threat. So they were a little bit higher in their in their pressing actions, and they were 
pushing Spurs higher up the field so that they were not as comfortable putting crosses into the box. And I think in those kind of situations, if you have Toby Alderweireld that is able to sort of circumvent that when teams are compact in the middle of the field, um, you can have a real issue. And I think a lot of that, uh, that was a big part of, of Spurs' attack. And I think also the way that he recycles possession for Spurs is very quick. And, you know, one or two seconds can be the difference between whether you expose, you know, a vertical gap in the defensive formation or not. So I would say it's a big part down to his passing ability. Um, I would also say that Victor Wanyama being unfit kind of puts Moussa Dembele in a difficult situation because as good as he is at spinning out of pressure in the middle of midfield, um, he's not a very good vertical passer. He didn't take those opportunities as well as maybe um, someone else would. I think there was a quote a long time ago where Mauricio Pochettino wishes he would have gotten his hands on on Dembele a few years prior because he would have taught him how to do uh, you know certain things differently and made him a more aggressive vertical passer. So with the conjunction of those two things, with the lack of um, adequate possession recycling and some of the things that Alderweireld, like I mentioned, is able to do, as well as the fact that they struggle in this department of uh, ball progression in the middle of the field. I think this that's sort of where Spurs are, are struggling to create more chances than they usually do. That being said, in this past couple games where they have dropped points, the the chances are still there. The the they're still creating a, a decent amount of chances and a decent amount of chances to to justify wins. So I think the the performances are still there. The uh, the uh, results might have dipped, but it's not as mm. bad as people think. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that it's it's frustrating because it doesn't seem to be functioning um, in all areas of pitch. As you say, with Toby Alderweire missing, he, he brings so much both in a defensive and offensive sense. Uh, Victor Wanyama, I think, is a huge miss. Um, clearly, without Toby Alderweire, the back three doesn't quite work. Pushing you know, a switch to a back four for this game, pushing Dyer into midfield. Um, and as you say, if I was trying to be positive, you know, we did create a lot of chances against Watford. We had eight attempts against Leicester as well. We were guilty of being incredibly wasteful in front of goal. Um, the, the attacking players that don't seem to be contributing in terms of their decisiveness. I mean, yes, Jung Min Son scored in this game. Been the previous three or four games, only Harry Kane has got on the score sheet. Christian Eriksen, I think, uh, his form has been questionable in recent weeks. I'm not sure if it's fatigue with the, the World Cup playoffs, of course, against Ireland uh, just a few weeks ago. That all may have sort of added up. Um, I think this assist for Son in this game is his first assist since the opening weekend of the Premier League season. Christian Eriksen, Deli Alley's form as well has been questionable even before the win against Real Madrid. It's been incredibly patchy and it's been the source of uh, incredible frustration for Spurs fans. So, you know, I'd like to try and be positive um yeah we've got three home games in a row now that we we need to win to to build up some momentum we've got Applewell in the Champions League of course which is a dead rubber it gives us the opportunity to potentially rest some players but we'd still be expecting a win Stoke City and then Brighton in consecutive Premier League games at home so I'm confident of winning those games. Unfortunately, we are going to be without Davinson Sanchez though, who uh, of course has been a very important player for us this season. Without him at the back, with Dyer being pushed into midfield, you know I think now Dyer and Vertonghen are the only fit centre backs we've got. So it'll be interesting to see how we're going to deal with these issues, how we're going to win these games coming up and build some momentum ahead of the game against Manchester City, which I think. Um, it could be a very big game, Spurs. I think if we win that one, we can realistically put ourselves back in top four. 
top four contention really because we've we've lost some serious ground on on Arsenal and Liverpool now and need to make a statement in a game like that in order to uh, to get ourselves back in the frame. But that's Spurs. That's the Premier League wrapped up. Let's move on to part two where we're going to be talking some of the other goings on from around the world of football as well as our reaction to the World Cup draw. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, part two, around the world in eight minutes or so, as I like to call it. Uh, also, our reaction to World Cup draw. We didn't get to do a Thursday Q&A podcast last week. Please do forgive us. Um, we'll give our reactions here in part two. Firstly, though, we have to talk about Syria. Um, unless you've been living under a rock, you might have missed uh, a pretty remarkable uh, goal in this weekend's action. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about this one? It was it was against none other than Gennaro Gattuso at AC Milan. Yeah, Benevento are a very small Italian club um, who, if you've ever seen their badge, they have a witch in the middle of it. Um, sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe, maybe shit. shit. Um, I didn't get that reference, I'm sorry. Um, That's good too, so. Um, there's a, oh, there's a sorry, press conference when he said this one was definitely shit. 2-1 up uh, in the dying <laughs> minutes, Chris. Yes, and... Um, so, yeah, Benevento actually reformed about, or reformed, excuse me, 12 years ago, so still very young. Hadn't picked up a point um, so far in, in the Serie A season. Had been beaten every single game, um, including some last-minute goals that were a real kick in the teeth. They have, I think it's a free kick, and they send up their goalkeeper, um, Alberto Brignoli, who is on loan from Juventus of all places. Um, and he produces a fantastic header. Um <laughs> to draw the match and I believe Gattuso said afterwards it was like it was worse than being stabbed I think he said he would have preferred to have been stabbed yeah that's exactly what he said I'd love to see um the Benevento manager's comments after the game as well because he told Brignoli not to go up Brignoli was like I'm gonna go up you know uh the manager's being stubborn I'm just gonna go for it the manager was like no no don't do it don't do it and then all of a sudden to get that their first ever point he must have been uh I'd be trying to take credit somehow or something if I was manager um what else did we have this weekend uh Sunderland there was a Sunderland fan Chris who appeared to uh to take a protest at the club's current uh state <laughs> um try to explain this one so this has been a constantly um constantly moving story because essentially at first it, it was claimed the boy because he is a boy he's only 17 mm. had taken a shit in his seat if you'll pardon my french yeah, which, um, which led to a lot of puns about stadium of probably, probably of had shite. a lamb kebab 
previous to this. Yes. Yeah. Um, you can sympathize with this guy, Nico. It's funny. The best joke I heard about that was that a steward saw it and shouted who shit on the floor, to which John O'Shea said me, but I'm good in the air. Um, it was then revealed that he had actually maybe had a piss in his seat instead. Um, he has since come out and said that he had no idea what was, was going on. There was lots of um, he said, she said stories about, oh, I saw it happen. There was two rows away from me. Kids threw up, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was taken to the stadium holding cell. Um, and he has since come out and, and sort of addressed it and given a story, I think, to the mirror, saying that he basically had a, a lot to drink. Uh, I think 12 beers and six pints of cider, which is... Uh, that would do me. Yeah, that, that would... I think that would do most people. Um, and he said he doesn't remember anything other than waking up in the holding cell. Um, there, there's a lot of complication about the legal aspect of this. I believe if he was 18... He could get done with public in, uh, indecent exposure, which would potentially put him on the sex offenders register. So there is a serious element to this at the same time. I'm not sure how that changes with him only being 17. Um, I'm not sure what the, the minor charge is for this. But with that said, it is a pretty horrible story. And I think, you know, if, if you're looking to take something slightly serious away from it, I think it does point to the fact that, you know, there is a little bit of a a drinking culture and a, a, a negative one wrapped around football at times. And I think things like this um, do sort of proliferate that. I mean, again, he's 17 and I imagine he didn't have every one of those drinks at home. He must've had some of them in the city. And so someone somewhere isn't IDing him um, without wishing to t- sound too much like his dad. There was also uh, another interesting story I saw um, related to Spurs, which was Mark Clattenburg's comments uh, about their draw at Chelsea, which many seen as them conceding the title to to Leicester City. Have you seen these comments, Nico? I have not. So Mark Clattenburg came out and said, (laughs) now he said, I allowed Tottenham to self-destruct. Uh, after he went in with a game plan. This, I should say, was on the uh, Men in Blazers podcast. Um, Clamberg's four comments were, I allowed them to self-destruct, so all the media, all the people in the world went, Tottenham lost the title. If I sent three players off from Tottenham, what are the headlines? Clamberg cost Tottenham the title. It was pure theatre that Tottenham self-destructed against Chelsea and Leicester won the title. Asked if he helped to script the game, he replied, I helped the game. I certainly benefited the game by my style of refereeing. Some referees would have played it by the book. Tottenham would have been down to seven or eight players and probably lost when they would have been looking for an excuse. But I didn't give them an excuse because my game plan was let them lose the title. Now, this has been uh, very interesting for a lot of Spurs fans. I think, yeah, uh, for Clattenburg to come out and say this uh, in this interview. Um, Some interesting reactions uh, ranging from the fact that, you know, maybe if he got a grip on the game, it would have turned out differently it might not necessarily have been three or four Spurs players being sent off it may have been a very different game who knows I personally feel like um, if I was being charitable I feel like he's he's worded this quite poorly poorly. yeah (laughs) I'm not gonna suggest that um, you know he's he he gave the the title to Leicester or it was his fault that he cost Spurs title because he didn't referee the game correctly but uh, yeah, I think it's quite unfortunate the way he's uh, he's phrased some of these uh, some of these quotes, as it were. Chris, would you? I have you a or Nico. Sorry, I have a newfound maybe. Yeah, I have a newfound respect for um, 
for referees in general after watching. I think it was something that they did on YouTube, but um, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville did like some of the training yeah. courses or something that um, some of the referees do. And in terms of like offside decisions and all that stuff, like that, that, that stuff is really a lot more difficult than we make it out to be. It's, it's just refereeing a game. I mean, yeah, essentially. And like, I don't know. I after watching that, and I think everybody should go watch it. I think it's on YouTube for free. Um, you know, just it, it, you you kind of put yourself into the shoes, and you think, man, that with twenty two guys yelling at me in all different directions, and the game moving at the pace that it does, like it, it's probably impossible to do that job to the is to that, the perfect degree. I so. would agree, but is it different to go into a Premier League game saying that you've got a game plan, yeah, you've got I a think- pre disposition so that you can't be blamed for i think he worded that poorly because i from what i understand and from what i got from the thing that i watched is these guys are like you know they have a strange obsession with you know maybe not strange but they have a a duty to themselves and they want to officiate the game as well as they possibly can because they go back after games and they self-criticize and they watch um and from what I saw from the reviews that they made public um, and some of the reviews that have been made public in the past, like they are very harsh on themselves and they want to get the calls right. So like you said, I think maybe this is a bit of misquoting or he worded it poorly because I think he was just probably trying to say, I wasn't going to try to overly affect the game because of the importance of it. He Mm. probably just wanted to let it happen. And since Spurs were imploding, I don't think, you know, if, It's not like, you know, sorry to say it, but it's not like if he had sent off the Spurs players, and probably rightly so, even though it was one of my favorite things to watch Chelsea players just get absolutely abused. Um, I I did quite enjoy it with you. If he had sent them off, I don't think that the result would have been any better for Tottenham Mm. Hotspur. I mean, I said it may have been a charitable interpretation. Chris, what's your thoughts? Because Clattenburg is a... It's a referee who, although he's a very good referee, is obviously renowned, I think, for potential attention-seeking, trying to make himself the mm-hmm. uh, the centre of attention, as it were. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a perfect way to, to articulate it. I mean, you look at, um, I think, just his, his media image. The fact he signed with an agent, I think, at one point as well, yes. um, and then was forced to, to cancel that. Um, the, the thing is, when I look at, the perception of referees historically in England, it's always been, or, or the one that jumps to my mind is David Ellery. I don't know if, if Nico will know who, who I'm talking about here, but he was a for, I think he was a former school teacher or headmaster. And he was very authoritative and there was a, a sense of, you know, almost like he did his Monday to Friday job and then on the weekend he was a referee. And I think what we're seeing is a change, a changing uh, of the image of referees. Now, you look at someone like Kalina, who, again, had that sort of pop culture status to him because of his iconic look, but I don't ever feel he played up to that. I feel like he was a very good referee that just permeated the culture because of of his look. And I don't feel too comfortable with referees. I'm all for humanising them, and I think it's great when we can involve them in the dialogue. I I watched something the other day with... uh, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, I think, from from last summer, where they sat and had a chat with some of the Premier League referees about decisions and situations and all this kind of stuff. But I, I do become a little bit concerned when you see referees doing these kind of interviews and where this kind of stuff comes to the fore, because I think it undermines the profession as a whole. And I don't think it gives them the protection or even just the... 
the credit that, that I think they need at the minute, I think it, it sort of muddies the waters about things. Yes, they're human, I appreciate that, but I don't think they be um, held in or, or treat with the same uh, prestige, if you will, as, as, say, a player or a manager or something like that. Mm. Uh, shall we finish up then by talking our World Cup draw reactions? Um, we didn't get a chance to get our Thursday podcast last week, um, so we may as well do it now. Uh, what do we think, Chris? Firstly, of course, by England uh, being drawn against Tunisia, Panama and Belgium. You'd obviously expect them to progress from that group. Perhaps not top, though, with uh, Roberto Martinez's side also in there. Uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely sold on on Bobby Martinez's Belgium side. Not from a talent perspective. Mm. I think they've got loads of talent. Um, they've got they've got mountains of the stuff. It's it's how he organises them that I don't like. Um, I look at the game they had against Mexico, where De Bruyne came after and said, you know, credit to to Mexico, they outthought us. Um, and and I think that gave a little bit of a a window into the the mind of of him and the players around him because. They had Mark Wilmot, who again was similar sort of, you know, just throws eleven names down on a piece of paper and then says go and play good. Um, but Martinez has a little bit more structure to that, but I don't think he has necessarily the almost pragmatism to see the entire pitch. Or I think that's what the truly great managers do. They see the the situation from every angle, um, or at least from every player's angle. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I don't think they will be as as runaway winners as maybe we want to indicate. I think it'll be a little bit closer than that. Mm, I mean, I don't want to indicate they'll be runaway winners. I'm, I'm quite happy to finish top as England, but um, be interesting to see how that pans out. Any other groups that are standing out for you, Nico? I mean, France look like they've got a pretty easy enough ride against Australia, Peru, Denmark. Any other groups that are standing out for you? Um. Yeah, I think Group D is a tough one. All those teams seem to be pretty good. Iceland obviously showing what they can, what they are capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, in Euro twenty or at Euro twenty sixteen, a few years ago, Croatia is a very good team, very talented group of players. Nigeria is a very talented group of players as well. And um, I'll be interested to see how the weather or climate affects uh, this year's World Cup. Obviously, it being in because I think the weather was such a big factor in Brazil. Um, given the heat and humidity, a lot of those, a lot of the European players were essentially at a disadvantage because they simply don't play in those conditions. And and people talked about, you know, the Brazilian players or the South Americans, you know, understanding more of that climate. And we had, I think, they had water breaks, right, in certain games. Or uh, yeah, I believe they did. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd be I'd be interested to see how if if at all I don't I've never been to Russia hopefully I get to go someday, um, but if at all you know the the climate is affects the team but yeah I think Group D is a, is a real good one I th- also think Group H is probably pretty decent people aren't looking at it that much because there aren't too many interesting players in that one but obviously Saudi Amani's Senegal and and Colombia is always going to be a decent team as well as Poland has I think done pretty well in qualification um, I'm excited for group b because it's the team i supported um obviously a, a difficult opponent with portugal but you know they should they should you know do, do they should progress through that group pretty easily mm-hmm. um but as you're mentioning i think um i don't think belgium 
if there was a slightly more talented team than Panama or Tunisia, I think Belgium might go out in the group stages because they are wow. comically bad with uh, wow. with Roberto Martinez and Thierry Henry, just a group of idiots. So. <laughs> It'd be interesting to uh, see how Germany get on in uh, in Group F as well. Uh, the last two defending champions of the World Cup have been knocked out in the group stages, Italy in 2010 and Spain in 2014. Uh, Germany, though, up against Mexico, Sweden, South Korea. Some decent teams in there, Chris, but you'd expect them to avoid the the banana skin, as it were, that the uh, previous holders have. Sorry, say that again? Just that Germany are going to go through, and they? They're going to smash Mexico, they're going to smash Sweden. It's going to be easy, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd imagine so, just because of the, t- the depth they've got. You look at like the, the Confed Cup and the team that they had there, and then you know that isn't even their starting lineup, I think, uh, or their best squad, excuse me. So, yeah, I think they've got a bunch of options, which we should never hurt. Brazil as well. Group E with Switzerland, Costa Rica, Serbia. They expect them to uh, to progress rather easily. Um, Group A. Group A looking pretty decent as well. I don't know anything about Saudi Arabia and how, how whether they're a competent team. Obviously, they're competent because they're at the World Cup, but um, you know whether they're good or not. Egypt, obviously, being a pretty decent team out of the African countries, and, and then Uruguay is always a, a a pleasure to watch with Cavani and Suarez. Um, and then the host nation, I think, will be looking to make a statement because they're not going to want to grow go out in the in the group stages at their own competition, essentially. So um, I think that that one will be relatively interesting as well in terms of who gets that second spot between Egypt and and or Russia, Egypt, and Uruguay. Mm. Uh, any early picks for a winner? Apart from England, I mean, the obvious Football. choice. Football will be the winner. Do you think it will how, be the how, winner? Be, you, you, two, uh, you two being English English people, how, how far do you think they'll get? <laughs> Us English people. Uh, I, I think, I think uh, as based on that group, I think uh, quarterfinals maybe, I think would be... Would be a good quarterfinal. Yeah, I think that'd be good for England. I think I'd be quite happy. Do you think was that an exclamation that you think we'll get further or not? No, no, I don't think. You, <laughs> you think we're going out in the, in the round of sixteen? Then basically, um, how far I do you just... think America will get? <laughs> <laughs> ah, he says he's sports Spain. That's fine. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting. I'm intrigued to see if it's going to be. Um, I'm intrigued to see what it's going to be like as a World Cup because, you know, for me, 2014, I think was. A fantastic World Cup. Some of the best games, some of the best players we've seen. 2010, yeah, not so much. Uh, so I'm intrigued to see, you know, out, out of those the recent World Cups, whether it can sort of live up to a more of a 2014 as opposed to 2010 sort of uh, level of quality. But um, I'm excited. You, can, you can't not be excited about a World Cup. Uh, I'm hoping to get out to Russia myself. So we'll see how it all goes down. But uh, yeah, England are going to win it. That's the uh, the basic conclusion. <laughs> uh, guys, thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there should also be a bonus podcast sitting in your feed from Saturday, uh, discussing on breaking into to journalism and digital football media. Seems to have gone down quite well, Chris, hasn't it? A few nice tweets we've got. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, it's it's something we need to continue and build on, so we can can give a bit more um, advice and cover a few more topics. But yeah, it's it's been great feedback so far. And we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. The ones without me seem to do quite well. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, uh, you know, we, we managed to get ourselves in a room for once and it, uh, it, it was quite good. But I think as Chris says, yeah, do keep sending the feedback on Twitter. Uh, let us know if you want to see a part two as well. Until Thursday, though, when we'll be back with uh, some Champions League roundup.
talk as well as the Q&A. Nico, where can the uh, where can the listeners find you? The good folks can find me at Nico underscore Morales on mm-hmm. Twitter. Perfect. Uh, Chris? At the front three. At the front three. So selfless. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Not Anthony Boltwood. At Adam Boltwood. Very important to remember. Uh, do send somebody, in Somebody make that burner account. Yeah, someone will. Right, there was... Uh, Boaty, what did they one before? Spark oh, Adam, someone made Adam Boatwood. Yeah, that was a Boatwood. Good one. Yeah, uh, and one a fake account for my dad as well. Dad Boatwood, I think, which was quite disturbing. But anyway, guys, don't make any of those fake accounts. Don't waste your time on that. Get your reviews in on iTunes. Rate and review the front free if you want to be in with a shout. I'll be in the whole of the week, the listener of the week on this Thursday's podcast. I'll look forward to reading those. Until Thursday, have a bloody great week. 